and we are talking today. Today is actually the final day in our weird series. We've been doing this for five weeks now, and we are in, uh, and we're just winding it down to the end with a message that we're going to talk about: a weird view of money. Just be, now, I'll just say you can take that look right off your face. <laughs> weird view of money. You saw it. And you got that look on your face, like, "Uh oh, Dad called a family meeting." Here's the deal. Here's the deal. The whole premise of this series that we're sharing, right, is that, um, is that there is a broad path that many people are on, that Jesus said that broad path leads to destruction, but he also says the good news is that there's a narrow path and it leads to life and we can find it, although fewer people are on that path. In fact, the people that are on that narrow path are going to appear weird to all the people who are on the broad path that way. And I just, I need to acknowledge this right here and now, okay, is that one of the things I love about our church is that we're, we're a diverse group. We're diverse age-wise, we're diverse socioeconomically, and we're diverse spiritually. We have, we have uh, people who have been following Jesus for decades and decades. And then we have people who just began following Jesus as recently as last week in our services when they gave their heart to Christ and stepped across that line of faith. And pretty much every week we have people here with us as well who, are, who have not yet stepped across the line of faith, who are maybe coming and visiting with a friend, maybe just uh, exploring what Christianity is really all about and who this God might be, and people who have not yet committed to a life of following Jesus but are interested to learn what's all that, what's all that about, right? And so it's especially to that last group who may be here just exploring and you wouldn't say, hey, I've actually aligned myself with the teachings of Jesus and I believe everything he says. I'm just kind of looking into it. Can I just say to you, A, I'm super glad you're here. No better place that you could be and I hope you feel absolutely welcomed. And, um, and B, you kind of get a pass where the weirdness is concerned. You do. We're not here in this series or really at any time trying to tell you how you ought to live your life outside of a, of a faith in Jesus Christ. Really what we do when we start talking about the weirdness that God identifies and the weird way he calls us to live, that, that's a weird way that he calls his followers to live. And, uh, and so listen and learn, and I believe all of God's truth and wisdom really plays out well whether you follow him with your whole life or not. But for those of us who have stepped across that line of faith, for those of us who do identify ourselves as followers of Jesus, that's a whole different deal, right? It's not just that we can look and, and see that the life God calls us to live is a little bit weird. It's that there's an actual challenge that we're supposed to do that, and we're supposed to be on board. We're supposed to be on that narrow road, and that gets a little challenging. And here's the weirdest of the weird. At the, at the heart of all the weird things that God asks us to do and all the weird ways he asks us to be, at the heart of it is this. Jesus' followers are not in charge of themselves. It's weird in America, the land of, of independence, right, and personal autonomy. It's weird to just say, I'm not in charge of my own life. I've handed over the reins of my life to the direction of somebody else. I'm allowing somebody else to make the decisions and call the shots and determine what kind of life I'm going to lead and how I'm going to lead it. But that's what it is to follow Jesus. And so the real weirdness is, yeah, I've kind of said, Jesus, you make out of my life whatever you want it to be. You send me in whatever direction you want me to go. You tell me to behave however you want me to behave, and I'm on board with that. That is weird. And now this morning, we're going to talk about what that looks like as it applies to 
the area of money and the area of finances and stuff. But it's not limited to that at all. Money's, money's just a case study in what it means to be weirdly submitted to whatever it is that God would say. So we do, we talk about money sometimes. Jesus talked about money a lot, a lot. And you know what happened when he did talk about money? He ticked people off. <laughs> they got really uncomfortable and they got mad at him. Toward that end, like, save the email, because if you send me the angry email, I'm just going to go, cool, they think I'm just like Jesus, and I'm going to feel really good about it. So we just cut that one right out. We're going to look at money as a case study and what it means to be totally submitted to the way God calls us to live his life. Because the view of money that the Bible describes is a little bit weird by today's standards. And, and one of the items, one of the ways it's weird is, is the Bible calls us to a weird view of our own resources. And by re resources, I mean the resource of, of our time and our schedule, what we do and where we spend all of our, t our uh, energy and efforts. Uh, I'm talking about resources like the particular giftedness and, ex and expertise that we may have in one field or another, those things that God has put into us that we can contribute somewhere to make a difference. And yes, talking about the resources of money as well. And, and the weird thing is this, from a scriptural standpoint, my resources, my time, my money, my giftedness, my resources from a biblical standpoint don't really belong to me. Like it feels like they do, and like legally and within this society, of course they do, but from a biblical standpoint, it all belongs to God. This is what the psalmist wrote in Psalm 24. He said that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it belongs to him. He's the one who spoke it into existence. He's the one that created it. It belongs to him. But, this, I mean, my, my money, this, I worked hard for my money. I, 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 put diff, I put effort into difficult work, and that's how the resource of money came to me. But even do we understand that the, that the gift of the job that you have is a gift from God to you? That the skill set that you possess, possess by which you make your living. Those are gifts from God that make that possible. It all belongs to God. The, uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament really knew this. They went for a long time where their place of worship, it wasn't a big building, it was just this very temporary shelter, the tabernacle. And then the time came for them to build a temple for the Lord Almighty. And um, they called the people together and said, would you bring your possessions, that you would contribute towards this effort? Would you bring some of your gold, your valuables, your jewels, your whatever you possess, bring that and contribute it towards the effort of building this temple? And when they came together and finished, and there, were, there was this prayer of consecration over the temple, this is, this is how they prayed in Second Chronicles 29. They said, O Lord, our God, even this material that we have gathered to build a temple to honor your holy name, it comes from you. It all belongs to you. That's why they were able to freely give it and contribute towards that particular task was they knew that what they had already belonged to the Lord. And that's a difficult thing. It's a, it's a weird thing to think about that my resources might not really be mine, that they might ultimately belong to God because it requires me to ask new questions about my resources. Instead of asking what do I think I'm going to do with my day? Or what goals do I want to set for myself this year? I have to ask new questions like, God, what might you want to do with my day today? God, what goals might be on your heart for me in the coming year? 
Instead of asking questions like, what might I be able to accomplish given the gifts and talents and experience that I have? It requires a new question that says, God, what do you want to do with whatever it is that I possess in terms of talent? What difference and what impact do you want me to make with the gift and gifts that you've given me? It requires us to ask different questions about money, to not just how am I going to spend the money that I have and the resources that I have, how am I going to invest them and manage them? God, how would you like me to do that? Those are different questions entirely, right? They really are. God, what would you want me to do with the resources that you've given me? Can I give you just a, a super practical application? We're in that season of the year where many of us are looking forward to an income tax refund, right? And many of us have already started thinking not just about um, the drudgery that goes with filing the return, but about what happens when that refund comes and how much we might expect and then what we're going to do with it, right? And we feel, and rightfully, it's our money. It was our money. We gave it to the government for a little while. And now, by some miracle, they're giving some of it back. And we feel like, they're giving me my money back. Welcome home. <laughs> and now it's mine to do anything I want with. And that is our right as, as citizens, right? It's our right as, as Americans. That's, we're, that's fine. But can I just say that as a weird person on the narrow road, there should at least be the question, not just, what am I going to do with that? But God, is there something special? Is there something different? Is there something unique that you would like to do with that? And I'm not here to tell you what that is. I'm just here to, to challenge you to at least ask the question and then live out a radical obedience to whatever God puts on your heart. That's what it is to live a weird life. That's what it is to have a godly, weird view of resources. We don't just have, like, there's, there's a weird view of our resources, but there's kind of a, a uh, alongside of that, the Bible gives us this weird view of debt. And uh, that's a second way in which our view is weird. And now, I mean, the Bible's not unique here, right? Most everyone will say, debt's a bad thing. You should stay out of debt, and if you're in debt, you should get out of debt, right? That's not uniquely Christian or uniquely biblical at all. Um, but notwithstanding all the people that would say, hey, debt's a bad thing, did you, know, did you know that the average American household is running roughly a balance of $16,000 of consumer debt, credit card debt alone? Not mortgages, not other things like that, but they're not automobiles, just the credit cards. It's a little staggering. And when you start processing, like, what are the interest costs on that per year? And, and all that extra burden and all that extra weight and the way that just kind of handcuffs us in how we live and the things that we can do, that's a lot of pressure. There's a lot going on there. Scripture says, um, you know, that the, that the borrower is the slave to the lender. It really, it understands how um, binding and oppressing the weight of that kind of debt can be. Debt really is, um, debt is America's answer to wanting something that we can't afford. I want it. I may even need it, but I can't afford it. And so what do I do? Put it on the card. Go in debt after it. We'll figure that out later. And, and not too surprisingly, God has a slightly weirder view of what to do when we hit that moment where there's something that we want or feel like maybe even need, but we don't have the resources for. And God's super weird answer to that moment is not debt. It's contentment. It's 
learning to live and to be content with what God has made provision for and not lunging after and leaping after and chasing after things that God has not yet provided for. Paul wrote this to the church uh, in Philippi. He said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. Paul had had the ups and downs and the, the windfalls and the breakdowns and everything else. He says, and I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul had learned the secret of being content, and it's that inner contentment and settledness with whatever amount God has provided for me that says, okay, that's what God has for me. Those are the means I'm going to live within, and I'm going to choose to be content in that. And what was Paul's secret for staying content in that? He says, here's the secret. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. You may say, I want to be content, but that's a pipe dream. I can't do it. You may, Scott, you don't know my life. You don't know my circumstances. You don't know my situation. I couldn't possibly be content. I'll be honest. I kind of agree with you. I struggle with it too. If contentment is just something that we could muscle up in our own strength and will and produce, it wouldn't be such a problem. Paul helps us realize that the contentment we need to live within our means when it doesn't feel like we want to is a contentment that comes not from our own strength, but from relying on the strength of Christ Jesus who is in us. In those moments where we can literally cry out and say, Jesus, would you help me to be content and not follow this, uh, this impulse into the folly and the foolishness of debt? I want to be content with the level of provision that you have made in my life. See, the, the biblical view of debt is a little weird. It's an issue of, of character and contentment as well as, as spending habits. But why, I mean, ultimately, why would it be so important to God whether you and I are in debt or not? Because I personally am very unmotivated by a rule. The Almighty has said, don't be in debt. Oh, my life has changed. That's not how it works for me. I need a little help understanding what's going on. A little bit of the why helps me step out in the discipline, right? And one of the things that God wants us to experience and wants us to know and to live a life is just to live that life that's unencumbered by the burden of unnecessary debt. That pressing down, that heaviness, that weight that says, I'm never going to get out from under this. I have these things I feel like God's calling me to do, but I can't get there because of this burden of debt over here. That, that kind of weight and pressure is horrific. It sucks the life out of us, right? And I think it's interesting when Paul was writing to the Colossians and he was describing salvation, what God has done for us in the forgiveness of sins. What was, what was happening when Christ died on the cross? And, and he's trying to connect with the Colossian church about exactly how powerful that is. And you know what image he uses? What picture he uses to get a sense of how powerful what Christ has done on the cross? He said, it's like there was a certificate of debt. And Jesus took it and he nailed it to the cross. It's like you were bound up in debt and that debt was just canceled and now you're free. He took the visa bill, <laughs> nailed it to the cross, and said, live a life of freedom from that. I just think it speaks to the understanding of the oppressive weight of debt that God wants to free us from. He wants to live a life 
of freedom and the ability to respond quickly to whatever opportunities might be there to serve others and and manifest God's love to others in generous giving. He wants us to lay our head on the pillow at night with an abiding sense of peace, the peace that comes from his presence and the peace that understands that, that that burden and the oppression and the weight of debt has been lifted. Talk to, talk to anybody who's found their way into debt and then out of that kind of debt, and they will tell you it, it took some hard discipline, some sacrifice along the way, some developing of contentment, and a lot of commitment, but that when they got there, it was absolutely worth it. The, uh, the Bible gives us just this weird view of our resources and who they belong to. It gives us this weird view about debt and why we should avoid it. And then it gives us this weird view of giving as well. And again, the Bible, Christian faith, that, it's not the only place that compels us towards giving towards others, towards being charitable, towards causes that make a difference and make life better for other people. The, the Bible is not unique in that regard. But it is unique in the way that it asks us as followers of Jesus to live out that charitable impulse. See, I think in the world's view of charitable giving, it typically goes like this. Giving to others. And when I say charitable giving, I'm I'm talking about giving to causes and giving to nonprofits and just helping out neighbors who are in need and and just uh, resourcing people because there's a need for that, as well as giving to the local church, right? And, And typically it works like this. I earn whatever money I can, then I pay my expenses, right? And then I enjoy some of what's left over my disposable income and maybe even manage some of that into some savings and into some investments. And then out of what's left over after all of that, I, I can give towards others because it, it turns out I don't need that and I can give that away. And typically, uh, the United States average, that's about 2% of, of our income as American goes towards some kind of charitable cause or another. But God asks of his people to do their giving in a weird way, to do something that's different. See, the the world's way, um, when the world decides on what are we gonna do with that leftover 2%, or if it will be 2% or more, they kinda, they're all of our, whether we acknowledge it or not, our financial interactions are driven by three things. Our desire to acquire things, right? Our desire to do good things with our money, and our fear or uncertainty about the future. Right, So I I want to acquire some things and have some things of my own. I want to acquire some influence or some power or just some fun family vacations and memories or whatever. Right, I I want to acquire some things. I want to do some good things. I want to bless some people. I want to give towards causes that are making a positive difference. But then there's this third factor. I'm just not sure what the future holds. And, And because of that, I'm probably going to give a little less because I'm unsure about what happens in the future that way. And so that whittles the charitable giving down to just kind of what's left from the leftovers. God's view, the biblical view, the way that God asked his weird, narrow road followers to give begins with this idea, give first. To carve out of our financial plan at the beginning a portion of our financial existence that's just designed and set aside to go to others, not ourselves. Proverbs 3 says this, honor the Lord with your wealth, and with the first fruit of all your crops. And then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. The Old Testament taught the, taught the Israelites 
that the way that they were to tithe, the way that they were to give, was from the first fruits, at the beginning of the harvest, the first of the produce that came in, that went to the temple, that went to the synagogue, that went to, uh, to the process that sustained the synagogue, the temple, the priests, the Levites, and everything that was necessary for the religious life of the land. The tithe came first, everything else came after. That's why they called it the first fruits. That's how God called his people to give, with the first and with the best. Um, but not just giving to the temple or to the synagogue through the tithe, but also God called his people to give to the needs in their community at the beginning, not out of the leftovers. The descriptions of the way that they were to do their farming, right, was that when they harvested, they were, to, they were not to harvest the corners of the field. They were to leave those for, for, for poor people who might have need, who could come, and they could have access to whatever was left in the corners of the field. They were told that when you harvest, just make one pass through the fields doing the harvest. Anything that's left over, that's for those who are in need and who are poor and who don't have any other resources or options. They can come by and they can pick up after that. Now, you and I both know that there is no rule that has ever been written that is so clear and direct that we can't get around it. You know that there were people who go, oh yeah, I'm good on the corner rule. Depends how you define corner, <laughs> right? And you know that there were those who were going, okay, I guess I'm only allowed to go through my field the first time, and so when I go through, I ain't missing a single grain. I'm getting it all. The giving God called us, it was not a giving of following the rules, right? It was, it was a principle there that said, there's part of what's in your field there that you should not consider your own, that you should consider should be left for those who are in need. There's a part of our resources, such as they are, that we should consider do not belong to us, but, but exist by God's grace for the purpose of caring for those who are in need. And that happens before any of it's in. That's powerful, and it's a little bit weird, right? It actually requires something of us. I don't think it's, a, I don't think it's possible to do that effectively unless we have a budget unless we have a plan, right? That's what, a, that's what a budget does. Before the fact, we make hard decisions and we meet with God and say, God, of all, that, of all that you're going to bless me with and resource me with, of all that you're going to bring to me, in advance of that, God, which portion of that do you want to go to others? And, and I'm going to make the plan and then I'm going to live the plan out, right? Because when do the generals form their battle plan? When they get there and the bullets start fly, flying? No. Long before that, they, they put a plan in place and they figure out what they're going to do and then they execute the plan. And yes, they adjust the plan along the way, but the plan comes before rather than in the heat of battle, right? I think that's one of the reasons God asks us to put our giving first. Because in the heat of battle, at the end of the month when the resources are few and I'm not exactly sure how it's going to play out, it doesn't seem there and I'm super stressed, that's not the time to form the plan and make those decisions. The time to make the plan is in advance. Setting that budget annually, monthly, however your budgeting system works, but to ask the hard questions in advance and work out with God, God, what kind of a giver are you calling me and our family to be? And how do you want us to live that out? We get to do that as a church. It's why every year 10% of, uh, we, we believe very firmly that we want 10% of the resources that come into the church to actually fund ministry outside the walls of the church, not to run our programs, not to do our things, but to make a difference in the community, to feed the poor, to spread the gospel, to plant other churches, and to see God's kingdom grow by sponsoring nonprofits in our community and the good works that are being done and all those sorts of things. 
And we, and we do, so we go, yep, we believe that's who God's called us to be. And so we kind of, in advance, set that percentage aside. That's why God asks us to, to give first. And it's hard. But we make those hard decisions in advance, and that empowers us to be the givers God calls us to be. Finally, not finally, but additionally, um, the biblical view of money, the view of money that Jesus calls to is to be people of great generosity, to give generously, right? Not the people who are defining the corners of our fields by the smallest possible definition or passing through our field, accounting for every last grain of wheat so that we don't miss a single one. But Jesus said this. He said, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. With the measure you use, that's going to be the measure of God's blessing coming back to you, right? So if you're passing out thimblefuls of blessing to other people, God bless you in the name of Jesus. God, like, like a communion cup. God bless you in the name of Jesus. I'm, I'm going to sacrificially give my thimble. And I'm going to come back to my reservoir and fill it up. Right? Again, Jesus told the, told the parable of the widow and the mites. Right? It's, it's not about the quantity. It's about the sacrifice of the heart. It's about the quantity of myself that I pour into that gift and make it work. It's not just about that. But the bottom line is this. Like, a thimble for one person might be an extensive generosity. Right? Or it may be a pittance. But if the generosity that we offer to others is merely a pittance, we can anticipate that that's the measure that God's blessings are coming back to us. That's based on the words of Jesus. God calls his people to be generous givers because more gets done and more blessings return as well. And now I, I want to close with just this idea that, it, that yes, it's weird that my possessions don't belong to me, and yes, it's weird this view of staying out of debt by, by remaining content. Yes, it's a little weird that I should be extravagantly generous in my giving. But I, I also believe that the weird way that God calls us to give is to give, and I don't have another word for it other than devotionally. To, when we give, wherever we give, to give with a heart of utter devotion to God. So whether that's, like, whether that's putting a check in the, in the basket as it goes by, or filling out an online recurring transaction, or, or whether it's just helping the immediate need I see in front of me, with a, with a person in my life, that whenever I do that, I'm not just meeting a need. I'm not just keeping the lights on in the auditorium. I'm not just helping someone who needs a meal. I'm doing those things, and those are valuable, good, wonderful things. I'm contributing to the work of God and the expanding of God's kingdom on a lot of levels, and that's excellent. But ultimately, that that gift, that act of giving, has to be the expression of a heart that's devoted to God that says, God, you have given me what you've given me, and I'm grateful and I appreciate it. And in giving back a portion of it, I declare all of it to be holy and all of it to be your possession. I hope that we never, ever come to the point of giving, whether we talk about the offering in a service or a special offering like we did today or just even out giving and serving in the community. I hope that never just becomes a checkbox experience like, yep, got it done, took care of it met my obligation. But I hope for us that every time we give, that it becomes this expression of a devoted heart that says, God, I'm, I'm giving you this, but what it means is that I am entirely yours. 
what, what portion of what I have and I give is really secondary to the fact that, God, I am declaring in faith that what I am and who I am and all that I have is entirely yours. That's what it is to be a devoted giver. And I pray that that's your experience. You know what? I would say do whatever you can do to heighten the sense of devotion when you give. If you need to write thank you, Jesus, on the memo line of the check, do it. If you need to say, I love you, Lord, gratefully, whatever it is, do it. But never let your giving be just, yeah, that's something I do. Let it be something that expresses a deep, heartfelt passion to be identified completely as the Lord's. So the good news probably is that the message about money is over. (laughs) On a sadder note, our series about being weird, that's over too. I know. But here's the deal. Your work's not done. We've talked about being weird, and we've talked about staying on the narrow road, right? And we've done that for five weeks. But that's a lifelong pursuit. Now I'm putting the ball in your court and saying, now it's up to you. What does it look like to be weird in your marriage, in your dating? (laughs) Elbows being thrown at spouses all over. I get it. I get it. What does it look like to be weird in a God way where your dating and your sexuality is concerned? What does it mean to be weird in a God way in your place of business and in your work and in your studies and in your families? There's a lot of application to be had, right? We got to go to scripture. We got to find out what weird looks like. And then we got to go be weird across the entirety of our lives together. And that's my challenge to you. And that's how I want to pray for you as I send you out today. Heavenly Father, I say this with great honesty as I look out over this group. This is a weird group of people, and I'm thankful for it. And God, I want to pray that you would empower us as we leave this place into the rest of our lives to pursue you in a way that is absolutely weird by the world's standards, in a way that compels us to live in a way that's different than the world, that compels us to please you in every sphere of our life and to align every activity with your directions and your instructions. God, would you empower us to do that in a way that stands out and in doing so makes a huge and positive difference in this world. In Jesus' name, amen.